0: Hi, everyone. I'm Deb, your host from Dying to Be Failed True Crime Podcast. Thank you so much for choosing our little indie podcast today. I love to say that this is a family thing, and today, my sister Beth is back to listen to Beth What I Say is a spectacular episode on a case that I have never heard before, and you just said the same thing right before we came on, so hang tight. You are really going to want to listen to this. Gosh, Beth, I'm excited to see you. It has been way too long. I think almost all summer. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, thank you. Yes, it's been a (laughs) heck of a long time.
0: It has. So I know you've been really busy. I appreciate you being here today. You are my family. I always love to catch up with you. But before I get started, I just wanted to talk about growing up in Canada for just a moment. I want to say from what I remember living there, did we have a pretty big United States influence in our lives? I feel like we did.
1: We did because our family
0: was in the States. So true and I don't know if you remember this but when we moved to that condo in the city we got our very first cable channels. Do you remember that? No. You don't remember that little box sitting on the console television and we had to go over there and press two rows of buttons to decide which channel we were going to watch.
1: I don't. That's (laughs) the problem with growing older.
0: Well, I loved it and I discovered that I loved baseball because I used to watch the Cleveland Indians all the time. Did you? Yeah. And then remember how we used to go across the border to go shopping and things like that? Oh, yes. Yeah. So what comes to mind when I say the word Boston, Massachusetts?
1: The Boston Strangler.
0: Oh, oh, we talked about me doing that, didn't we? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't had time, so we're going to go in a different direction today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) Boston is a city I've always wanted to see, and New York, and Chicago.
0: Yes. Now, I've been to Chicago. Oh, I've been to New York a dozen times. I love that city. It's everything that you see on TV with the big Times Square. Oh, (gasps) We need to take a trip there. We do. We need to meet there. Let's do it. Stop talking about it. Let's do it. That would be cool. Okay. So when I think of Boston, believe it or not, I think of Cheers. Did you ever watch that show? Yes, I sure did. Yeah. It's like an old town and it's just a really cool city. I would love to go there. That's on my bucket list. And today we are going to take a trip to Boston. Great.
1: And it doesn't even cost me anything. (laughs)
0: Well, I don't think that you're going to like this trip because we are, unfortunately, we're going to be talking about a string of murders that occurred back in the 1870s. So hang tight. Buckle up.
1: 1870s. Wonderful.
0: (laughs) Yes. I know that you like your old stories and I guess that's the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give a little bit of a disclaimer here before we get started. Yes, we are true crime, but I do want to let our listeners know that there are children involved today and I am going to try to stay away from anything graphic, but just know ahead of time, I will give you warning when I do have to talk about a couple things that, oh goodness, Beth, before we even started recording today, I was telling you how I really try not to be very graphic in what I talk about. But for the purpose of today's conversation, there may be one or two things that I talk about that I will just warn our listeners ahead of time that you might want to skip ahead for just a couple minutes. Sounds good. Back in the 1870s, children between the ages of three and nine were being tortured and disfigured with pins, knives, wood blanks, anything, you name it. And when I say wood blank, it's just think of a flat wood that would be used like a baseball bat of sorts. Mm. And all this was happening in the metropolitan area. And Of course, back in the 1870s, there was no metropolitan area, but it was happening around the Boston areas of Chelsea. Dorchester and Jamaica. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front who the perpetrator was here. His name is Jesse Pomeroy. He was a young lad from the Chelsea area who he was soon discovered to be the assailant of these victims. And Beth, when I say a young lad, I mean that Jesse went on his crime spree between the ages of 12 and 14. That is so young. My gosh. Very young. He is the youngest serial killer ever to be recorded in history. So he was killing people at 12 years old? He was. Oh. He was, which I'm going to get into in just a little bit. I wanted to start off, though, by giving you a little bit of Jesse's background. He was born on November 29th, 1859, and grew up in a very small town called Chelsea, which is east of Boston, Massachusetts. He was born with a defect on his right eye, which, to my understanding, Beth, I don't think he was blind, but his eye looked like a white marble. That's how some people described it, and he definitely had a very Distinct feature that really could not go unnoticed. What do you know about children who have defects?
1: Oh, they get teased terribly.
0: Absolutely. And unfortunately, Jesse did succumb to that. He was ridiculed not only by other children at school, but by his own father. Aww. You know, when I when I was putting this story together, Beth, I kind of get that because I don't know if you remember how chapped my lips used to get when I was a kid. Oh,
1: you were teased relentlessly by family.
0: I sure was. And you know what? I will say this. Nobody at school ever teased me. But yes, family members did. And that kind of sticks with me. So I can understand the feeling behind all that. And I will say this. Your daughter has done a study on children chapstick and how it can be addictive right right that was one thing that mom always said is that you're gonna get addicted to that. So she never allowed me to put chapstick on my lips.
1: Aww.
0: And that's why they got as bad as they did. And if anybody, you know, if any of our listeners wanna know what that looks like, it's just basically just a red rash around the mouth because when you lick your lips, you think you're moistening them, but you're not. It's just making them drier. So in the winter months, I always had to deal with that. And I'm telling you now, to this day, you will always find chapstick on me. <laughs> probably six little tubes. I have it in my bedside table. I put Vaseline on my lips before I go to bed. Yeah, I just do all that. And it's funny, because just like two weeks ago at work, I heard somebody say, Hey, man, do you have chapstick? (laughs) Guess what I did? He wasn't even asking me. But I was like, (laughs) I heard him say it. I said, I got you. I got you. I got some (laughs) chapstick. And I think it was like a flavored cocoa. I was like, hope you don't mind flavored cocoa, but here you go. And I was like, I don't even need it back. All right. Now, besides the constant verbal abuse sustained by his father, Jesse also endured regular beatings from him with a horsewhip or a leather belt. Some of the articles that I read said that Mr. Pomeroy was an alcoholic. And I think, Beth, you probably know how liquor can alter somebody's mood. Yes, for sure. Jesse's defense mechanisms quickly set in and he began to isolate himself from pretty much everyone one at a young age. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem here is that around the age of 12, despite the amount of bullying that he endured, Jesse became a bully himself. So who do you think he targeted? My guess is family. Family. He did have siblings and I believe he was, I feel like he was the oldest one. He did have at least one sibling. I didn't see much in that writing because everything I read was really on everything that Jesse did from the age of 12 and 14. But who he really targeted, Beth, was younger children, much smaller than him. Oh, poor things. As Jesse became a loner, he was quite keen on reading dime store crime novels that could be compared, according to psychiatrists, to today's violent video game content.
1: Really? Mm -hmm.
0: Some of these novels may have given Jesse ideas that eventually led him to act out in his fantasies, but when asked later why he did such horrible things, Jesse really couldn't give a clear explanation. The one person who did try to comfort him as he was growing up was jesse's mother i think that she probably saw that he was struggling he was isolating himself and that's a good thing right nurturing mother trying to comfort her son oh for sure Mm -hmm. well although Mum did her best to console jesse she couldn't help but notice when he began torturing and killing small animals And Beth, we know what people turn into when they start doing this, eh?
1: Oh, for sure. Big time criminals. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Jesse's mother wrote this off as her son simply being sad. And I guess I get it, because Beth, we all think our children are perfect. Plus, this was the mid-1880s, so this was a time before we really knew that this was a trait of known serial killers. Let's take a look at Jeffrey Dahmer here for just a moment. I've seen enough documentaries where his dad entertained Jesse fascination with animal bones. Yes. Because he thought it was just a young kid being curious about science and he encouraged that.
1: He did. I I watched uh, a show recently on it and I'm sure you did too. Really opened up my eyes. Really. It's like I blame the father for a lot of what went on.
0: I don't think it's normal to let a child live in the house by themselves but when he was younger I mean he was probably thinking oh this is a great activity that I can spend time with my son doing I mean I can't fully blame him for that but I see what you're saying absolutely because he encouraged it right mm-hmm,
1: he sure did
0: but unknowingly. And that's the thing that I think I I just, you know, in his defense, he probably had no idea. And then think about this too. Even as late as the 1970s and Today, we're talking about the 1800s. You know, there was not a lot of things to keep people occupied. You had to use your imaginations. There's only so many things that you can do. And obviously, back in the 1800s, they didn't have television. They didn't have radio, anything like that. So you had to use your imagination a little bit more.
1: Exactly.
0: Well... Between 1871 and 1872, a total of seven young boys around Chelsea, Massachusetts, began getting assaulted both physically and sexually by an adolescent boy. These children were often lured away by money or candy. The unidentified boy would take the children off to isolated areas, strip them naked and beat them with a rope or strike them in the face with that board that I had mentioned. Mm. One boy was tied to a telegraph post. beaten, maimed, and stabbed with a knife. That is just
1: awful. Like, I don't even understand how somebody so young can think to do that.
0: Now, here's the deal, Beth. We know our brains are not fully developed until, what, around the age of 25, 26 years old? Bingo. I was just told that. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, this is honestly... No offense to my audience that might be listening, but I do have to kind of say that to myself sometimes when these kids act the way they do. Uh, Anyway, so the Boston Globe, which is a very big newspaper outlet, got wind of what was happening in Chelsea and quickly labeled this attacker as the Boy Fiend because the children who were being attacked were able to at least give a description of this child. They knew that he was probably an adolescent, so the Boston Globe labeled him as the Boy Fiend. Well, Eventually, let me just tell you this, Jesse's mother sold newspapers at her place of business. At the time, she was running a five and dime store, which I think that's probably where he got those books from that he was reading. But she also sold newspapers. Imagine her surprise, Beth, when she opened the paper one morning and recognized the description of this child perpetrator as her own son, Jesse. That's pretty horrific. I mean, to open up a newspaper and
1: recognize your own child
0: yeah I don't think there was a picture of him but the description with his eye defect definitely gave him away Mm mm-hmm of course, Jessie's mum did as most protective mothers would do. She uprooted the family and booked it to South Boston, a whole 4.6 miles or 7.4 kilometers away, which I guess back in the 1870s, it was a pretty long distance back then.
1: Well, it must have been if she uprooted
0: them, but it, my gosh, <laughs> it's just not enough. No, and I told you, I've moved out to the boondocks and now I have to drive six miles to the grocery store and that's a long way to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On February 21st, 1872, after the Pomeroy family settled into a flat on Broadway Street in South Boston, Mrs. Pomeroy set up a dress shop in town and everything went back to normal or as normal as it could be with an abusive husband in the household but I read from multiple sources Beth it's not really clear either Mr. and Mrs. Pomeroy at this point in time were separated or she had just become a widow I'm not really clear on that fact so I'm not sure he's actually in the picture right now I did my best to find that if our listeners have any feedback I would love to hear that DM us on Instagram but either way she seemed to be the active parent in the household so we're going to move. into september of 1872 so we went from winter time into the fall so six months have passed and i had mentioned some of jesse's victims earlier and the torture they endured so the pomeroys settled into south boston and it was september of 1872 that a small boy was tied to a telegraph pole and tortured interesting that these articles are saying telegraph pole yes So that is around when this child was tortured, unfortunately, but I will say luckily he did survive and was able to give police a description of the perpetrator. He had a very distinct eye something which looked like a marble. Of course, not too many people fit this description, except Jesse Pomeroy, a relatively new resident in town. Jesse was quickly apprehended and sentenced to six years in juvenile detention. Now, do you remember when the new jail was being built in the town that we lived in and dad took us on a tour? Yes. I found that to be very fascinating. Did you like that tour? Yes. And I even got
1: to tour the, the old, old one. Really? Yeah, dad took me there.
0: Oh, did he ever lock you in a cell? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did the same thing to me. I think he was trying to scare us straight because we didn't want to end up there, I think. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So Jesse went off to juvenile detention and he only ended up serving 17 months before he was released for Good Behavior. However, it didn't seem that Jesse learned his lesson because only within one month of being released, he struck again. And this is going to lead us into 1874, Beth, just because he did spend time behind bars. Remember that he was off the streets for just a spell. So I'll just call that his cooling off period while he was in juvie. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously he didn't cool off. But by March 8th, 1874, 10 year old Katie Mary Coran went missing. Now, remember, I had told you that Jesse's mom had opened a dress shop in Boston. Katie had gone in to buy some supplies and was never seen again. A $500 reward was placed in the newspaper, but no one ever came forward to claim it. And Beth, just so you know, that's about $12,585 US dollars or $16,995 Canadian dollars today.
1: That's a lot of money.
0: It truly is. On April 22nd, 1874, Two boys set out to play at the beach in South Boston for the day. They had plans of going clamming. I just told you, kids use your imagination. Have you ever gone clamming? Yes, when I lived on PEI. Oh, did you catch clams? I did, but you had to be careful
1: because their razor clams would uh, give you cuts, very like a paper cut. Oh. You just dig them with your hands or the right way to do it is to get with a shovel, but we just used to do it with the hands.
0: And then you'd have a little steamed clam dinner? hmm Oh, that's amazing. Well, the boys miscalculated the tidewaters and found it impossible to catch clams that day. So instead, they did as kids do. They were using their imagination and they decided to go exploring. What they found, Beth, was quite horrific. Before I continue, Beth, I had mentioned I was going to give a disclaimer that what I'm about to say is graphic and it does include harm to a child. To our listeners, if you want to skip ahead probably about 15 seconds, you'll get the gist, but you don't have to listen to it. I just wanted to throw that out there. During their explorations, the two boys came across a sweet little four-year-old boy named Horace Millen. He was lying dead in a muddy marshy ditch. Oh. Horace had been stabbed 31 times all over his entire body. Plus, it appeared that somebody had attempted to set him on fire. Dear Lord. Beth, while I was doing my research, I found such a beautiful picture of little Horace millen. He's the sweetest little boy with the curly, blonde hair, and for a moment, I thought in the picture he was sleeping. But until I actually looked at the caption, then I saw his name. This in itself is where I say Jesse Pomeroy is a monster.
1: yeah, I can see, and I couldn't envision that's just horrific. That a child could do that.
0: Yes, and that's what I don't get.
1: Because I don't think we see that kind of thing
0: these days, do we? Somebody so young? No, never. I, I, This is the only case that I've ever heard of with a child so young. Not to say that other people are not out there. I mean, especially with these people who start with small animals, you know? right. It does start in childhood, but then progressing to human beings that young, that's nothing less than a monster here on earth. Mm -hmm. Police were called to the scene immediately. And during their investigation, they found two witnesses who had said that they were near the spot around noon that day where Horace was discovered. They noticed a tall young boy running away from that area. Jesse was quickly arrested. He was wearing the same clothes that he had on when he attacked little Horace. He had blood on his shirt and pants, and his shoes had mud on them from that marsh where footprints were left behind. So they were able to match that up.
1: Well, clearly he does have mental problems because he didn't have the foresight to take care of that clothing instead of, you know, leaving it on.
0: Yeah, and I don't know how much time had passed, but if the boys found Horace very quickly, we have a trail of smoking guns here. (laughs) But guess what Jesse did? He denied, denied, denied ever hurting anyone.
1: Ridiculous, ridiculous.
0: It is, but here's the thing, Beth. In the next breath, he told police that he couldn't help himself. So that shows you his mentality of a 12 year old actually at this time I think he was 14 but still I mean around that age you're still a child
1: Mm -hmm.
0: of course once he was arrested many people speculated that his abusive upbringing and his constant bullying due to his birth defect were contributing factors to his acting out what do you think of that I'm convinced so too you think so Yeah. I mean, I suppose it can shape you a little bit into who you are, but I'm going to say some of it had to have been ingrained in him. Oh, yeah. But you're right. If he's enduring that, it might be more understanding in just a little bit because I'm going to let some psychiatrists weigh in here in just a bit. So it'll make sense. All right. It seems that Mrs. Pomeroy could not take the public scrutiny of what Jesse had done to several children in that community. So by July 1874, she had moved out of Broadway. Broadway Street in South Boston. Honestly, she's on the run too because she took her son from Chelsea down to South Boston. Soon after the new tenants moved in, they began to work on some home improvement projects. As the new owners began to excavate the cellar, Beth, they discovered the remains of a little girl under a pile of ashes and rubble. No. No. Yes, the parents of Katie Coran were called to identify the corpse, which they had affirmed based on the outfit that Katie had been wearing the day she disappeared back in March of that same year. Katie had been brutally stabbed to death before Jesse hid her in the cellar. Oh my I guess I'm kind of wondering where's Mrs. Pomeroy at? Because if little Katie went in to get supplies, how did Jesse intervene? That's my question here. Oh, that poor little girl. So now I'm going to lay out some layman and expert opinions here. As far as the general public, people like you and me, Beth, believe that Jesse was influenced by those crime books that he was reading back when he was 12. Remember, I compared that with today's video games. Mm-hmm. Again, this was the 1800s, so things were a little bit different, but oh, I'm here to say, Beth, you and I grew up with Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, the Bobsy Twins, not to, you're smiling, those were really good books. Yes, <laughs> not- <laughs> they were. Not to mention, those were always turned into TV shows, right? Yes. And look what we're doing now. We're talking true crime, but we're not acting on it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So here's another interesting tidbit. The gossip mill surrounding this case suggested that Jesse acquired the taste for blood in utero because his mother had stopped by the local slaughterhouse where her husband worked at the time while she was pregnant with Jesse. Have you heard of such a thing? No, I don't believe in that. I don't believe that either. That makes no sense to me. But it's the 1800s when voodoo dolls were used. Absolutely. Well, here's another angle. And it actually came from Jesse's own mother. Around the time Jesse was born, remember he was born in 1859, Boston was experiencing a smallpox epidemic that came and went in waves. Beth, I think that you and I can put this into perspective. Our listeners can do the same because we can relate with COVID. Yes. So everybody was being probably very cautious Mm -hmm. and health risks were high. So when Jesse was just a couple of weeks old, he received a smallpox vaccination. Unfortunately, Beth, he was left with weeping sores all over his body for several months. Oh, that poor thing. I know. Now, he was only a couple weeks old when he got this shot. So Jesse's mother claimed that she was unable to touch him due to the severe pain that he endured anytime she tried. And this is kind of what reminded me too, when I was young, I used to get the most severe strep throat in the world. And I would get those welts in my throat. Yes, you did. Truly, that was probably the most pain I have ever endured in my life because even with penicillin and stuff, that would last for a good two weeks. So I get that when Jesse was touched and he had those welts on him, I think the combination of the effects of that vaccination... Plus, not experiencing a mother's bond could very well have created Jesse's separation and isolation traits since birth. What do you think of that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I do too, 100%, because they say that the mother's bond is extremely important. Experts seem to agree with this concept, just like you and me, Beth, saying that Jesse's trauma at a young age and detachment factors contributed to his impulsive, violent, and psychopathic tendencies. Yeah, so that's definitely a theory I can buy into. I'm not going to buy into the in utero. Yeah, That's craziness. Yeah. But I am not a scientific expert in any way, shape, or form. I'm just going to let you know what my theory is that I can buy into. By the end of the year, in December 1874, Jesse Pomeroy went on trial at the ripe old age Beth of 14 for the murder of Horace Millen. And because Jesse straight up said he didn't know why he did these things, his attorneys used this in his defense. Jesse's lawyers argued immoral insanity, stating that he had an irresistible impulse to torture and kill. To me, Beth, it just amazes me what lawyers will use in defense to get their clients off. I know that's their job, but is it ethical? Somebody's got to defend them, right? Somebody does have to, but
1: maybe, you know what, going back to 1874, perhaps that is what they honestly believe back then because they didn't have all the modern and scientific evidence.
0: You're right. And you know, that has come over time. Absolutely. I agree with you with that. Sure. On the flip side. Prosecutors stated that Jesse had acted with premeditation and knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, the state argued that Jesse Pomeroy was completely sane when he committed his crimes and he simply found pleasure in torturing those who were too small to defend themselves. Ultimately, Jesse was found guilty and sentenced to death. He was the youngest person in Massachusetts history to ever sit on death row.
1: Oh my gosh. Sentenced to death?
0: I mean, he's not a nice kid.
1: He isn't. Obviously, we're not supposed to be lenient towards, you know, such a a monster, but it just seems... I just had to gasp when you told me that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a shocking factor. Absolutely. Now, Jesse's lawyers appealed his sentence and his case was sent to the Supreme Court on February 12th, 1875. The higher courts agreed with this death penalty, Beth. Jeez. Well, let me tell you who didn't agree with this death penalty. Please do. The Massachusetts governor at the time refused to sign Jesse's death warrant, stating that his punishment was entirely too severe for such a young offender. So apparently, even though it goes through the courts, it's the governor that has to sign off on all of this. And the next governor of Massachusetts also agreed with his predecessor and refused to sign Jesse's death warrant. Instead, Jesse was sentenced to solitary confinement for the rest of his life, and he was sent to Charlestown State Prison to serve out his sentence. Wow, Beth. Solitary confinement? That means he doesn't interact with anybody in the prison system. I think that's a better... Do you, though? Because doesn't that drive people mad? Well, it does, but he deserved it. Absolutely. I suppose if he's going to serve a life sentence, I mean, that would probably in itself be severe punishment. Me personally, you know, I'm a social person. I don't think I could handle that. Yeah, I couldn't either. Well, Jesse certainly had a lot of time to think because he is not interacting with anybody. And during his time in solitary confinement, Jesse attempted to escape at least 12 times.
1: How in the world would that happen?
0: Probably you tried to run out. (laughs) Maybe, but I will say this. I don't know where he got the supplies from, but Jesse created a gas explosion that was intended to blow his cell door open. Oh my gosh. And it worked, Beth. Only a little bit too well. Jesse was knocked out from the blast and never made his escape.
1: Oh Oh my gosh. That is amazing.
0: I know. Like, where did he get these supplies from? Exactly. All right, there's something interesting that I know that you are going to appreciate, Beth, because we've talked about this before. At the height of his notoriety, Madame Tussaud created a wax figure of Jesse Pomeroy and featured it in her special gallery set up with murderers and ghouls. What do you think of that? That is very interesting. It is. Now, if any of our listeners are not familiar with Madame Tussaud, she founded the first wax museum in 1835. In And it was a major attraction during the Victorian era. She did quite well with this because she developed its main attraction called the Chamber of Horrors. And Beth, you know, we are all fascinated, unfortunately, with the grim side of life. We are. And I'm going to say that truly goes back to the beginning of time. But I know when I was a child, wax museums were a really big thing. Mm -hmm. They certainly were. Well... In 1917, at the age of 58, Jesse's solitary confinement was commuted, and he was finally placed in the general population in prison, where he appeared to be a model prisoner. After all, Beth, he had spent the majority of his adult life by himself, so what did he do to take up that time? He began educating himself. Jesse learned six languages and wrote poetry which was featured during prison talent shows. He even challenged prison officials with his legal rights as a prisoner. Wow. I know. By 1929, when his health began to fail, Jesse was eventually transferred to the Bridgewater Hospital for the Criminally Insane. During his stay, guards discovered saw blades and other tools in his possession. Obviously, Jesse continued to plot and think. Jesse died in 1932 from a heart attack while he was imprisoned. He was 74 years old. And Beth, that is the story of Jesse Pomeroy, the youngest serial killer on record.
1: Well, thank you for that. That was a very interesting story. I didn't expect to hear anything from a 12 to 14 year old and his antics. Jeez.
0: I know. I I couldn't believe this when I came across this story. I was like, ooh, I got to tell Beth this one.
1: Yes, I'm glad you did. So Deb, do you have a teachable moment for us?
0: Beth, I always have a teachable moment. I know it's getting a lot harder for criminals to get away with things these days with DNA and so much more accessible camera footage everywhere you turn, but one thing that we know is that human behavior hasn't changed very much over time. People are going to do bad things, and the one thing that struck me here while I was doing my research, Beth, is how Jesse's mom knew well ahead of time that he was harming small animals. That's really what struck me here. To me, that's a big red flag. Obviously, back in the 1870s, it probably was not, but I've mentioned that psychiatrists had weighed in on Jesse's mental capacities after he was caught. Not to mention that hospitals were pretty well established at the time. There were definitely resources back during Jesse's era as far as getting help with their mental health and even treatment in hospital facilities. Now, I know that no one wants to believe that their own child is capable of doing the unthinkable. But if something stands out today, like excessive bullying or harming small helpless animals, it's important to get help because these things just are not normal. And Beth, that's my teachable moment. Well, that was a very good one. Why, thank you. All right, well, we would love to receive feedback from our listeners on this storyline or any of our other episodes. Be sure to DM us on Instagram and check back with us next Thursday for a new episode of Dying to Be Found. Talk to you soon. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap. Thanks for listening to Dying to Be Found. Before we go, we would love for you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at Dying to Be Found. You can access our website email, social media, and storyline request form by clicking on our Linktree account found in our show notes. If you like our episodes, consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash found, spelled just like you see it on our logo. Feel free to message us on Instagram and let us know how we're doing. With that, be sure to check us out every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. We will talk to you all next week. Bye!